Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here at The Andrew Lawton Show on True North on this Thursday, February 1st, 2024, as we close out the week here. And I will say on a, just a couple of notes, I, I know one of the big stories of the week has been the Alberta government's release of this policy that has been long in the making. People have been awaiting for quite a while. It's a, I mean, nominally a parental rights policy in some ways, but it's really a comprehensive policy on how to deal with transgender issues in Alberta, not just in the education system, but also in the healthcare system and in athletics. And I know True North has covered that. We're going to have more coverage of it. I'm going to be talking about that in a bit more depth next week on Monday. And you'll know why shortly. I, I don't want to give it away just yet, but I, I want you to just know that I'm aware of the issue. I'm following the issue. I'm going to be talking about it in a greater bit of depth on Monday. And by then, I'll have the opportunity to have heard from Danielle Smith, who I believe is having a press conference if it hasn't already happened today. But uh, that out of the way, I wanted to talk about another hot button issue here. And We'll, we'll be joined by Michael Cooper uh, very shortly about this, the Conservative Member of Parliament, but I thought it was important to discuss on a personal note as well. Now, what I'm about to share is not new information if you've followed my career extensively. I've talked about these issues in the past, but if you haven't come across them or you have not, uh, or maybe you forgot about them because it's that unmemorable, I don't know, uh, or perhaps you just have been a, a recent newcomer to the show, I, I just want to warn you, this is a heavier subject because it pertains to suicide, which is a, an issue, sadly, I am intimately familiar with. I, I've not lost anyone in my life to suicide, but those in my life very nearly lost lost me to suicide back in 2010. Now, I have dealt with mental illness. I'm very grateful that I have been in a, an incredibly good place for over a decade by this point, but it wasn't always that way. I dealt with very severe depression and at several points in my life wanted to end it all together. Now, the reason I share this with you is probably familiar to you if you've been following politics. The Liberal government has committed to expanding assisted suicide, assisted dying, or made, as they euphemistically call it, medical assistance in dying, to people whose only ailment is not ALS or MS or terminal cancer, whose only ailment is a mental illness. Now, the government claims this is a response to a Supreme Court ruling. Indeed, the Supreme Court did, in fact, rule that the assisted suicide regime right now is too restrictive. But the government has accepted this at face value and has committed to allowing people with only mental illnesses to end their lives with state assistance. Now, this to me is egregious and offensive and personal. I don't often make politics personal. This one is because I'm very convinced, as I've written about in the past, that if this were the law, what they're proposing now were the law, and when I was going through my struggles, I would be dead right now. Just let that sink in for a moment. The reason I can say that is because I have always been able to get what I want. I haven't actually. That's a weird thing to say. But what I mean by that is that I knew how to say the right thing. Whenever I was put in front of a psychiatrist or a doctor or a nurse, I knew how to say the right thing. If I had wanted to show that I was of sound mind and it was a very clear decision and I was aware of the consequences of it and I wanted to end my life, I'm convinced that I would have been able to navigate through 
that process, to navigate through all of the different supposed guardrails, checks and balances that exist in the assisted suicide regime, and ultimately get the state's assistance in ending my life. And I'm aware of that. Because I know that people who defend this say, oh, but but we're, no, we're, we're going to have all of these measures in place to ensure that uh, the only people who get it are the ones that are really eligible. But what are those eligibility criteria? The way the laws are worded, you need to have an irremediable condition. It needs to be grievous and irremediable. Well, severe depression that is so bad, so severe, you want to end your life is grievous. The issue is, of course, irremediable. My struggles with suicidality and depression were at a time in my life when I was convinced that it was irremediable. I was convinced that there was no future, there was no hope. Life was not going to turn around. I was 100% absolutely assured of this, convinced you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. If you had given me a picture of my life now and showed it to the Andrew Lawton in 2010, I would have said, you're crazy, that's nonsense, it's never going to happen. Well, it has. So that's where mental illness is different than MS or ALS or cancer, a lot of these uh, degenerative diseases that are often associated with MAID. It's why it's so different, because with those things, there is a trajectory and a path that we can predict with near certainty. Now, things can take longer, things can take slower. I believe in, in miracles. I'm a Christian. I believe that people who have uh, believed that they are not going to be able to be healed have managed to have breakthroughs. That is not the case, as I understand it, with MS or ALS in cases that I have seen. So the point of that, though, is that there is a predictability that does not exist for mental illness. And it's also the old slippery slope argument. The idea that just because we allow this one thing, we have to allow all of these other things. This is why we've had numerous cases, not just one or two, numerous cases in Canada of people that have sought made, even, by the way, before this policy change kicks in, when they are suffering from something that's not even an illness. They're suffering from housing insecurity or instability. Veterans that have called in, well, this was one case, veteran who called in to Veterans Affairs for a, I think it was a wheelchair lift was uh, offered a maid instead because, well, maybe we don't have a wheelchair lift available, but can I interest you in assisted suicide? I think it was Saskatchewan, it might have been Manitoba, but I'm pretty sure it was Saskatchewan where uh, one of their health hotlines, you'd call in and it was, oh, press one for this, press two for that. And on their menu was to press whatever number it was for assisted suicide because it was a request that was, I guess, common enough or they wanted to be common enough that they put it front and center as an option for people. There is in this country a culture of death which is being facilitated by the Liberal government as it commits to expanding MAID. Now, the glimmer of hope this week, and why I'm talking about it now, is that this change was supposed to go into effect in March. It's been delayed and delayed. It was supposed to go into effect in March. The Liberals have said, no, 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 we're going to kick it down the road a little bit more. This is what Health Minister Mark Holland had to say when he was scrumming with reporters this week. Definite delay on the table. Uh, look, I, I appreciate that you want to get to the legislation. It's coming soon. I'm not in a position to be able to talk about what's in it. There's, there's going to be an election, there's, there's be an election well, in this think, country by 2025, and, and by this rate, it looks like yeah. Canadians might not have access to this, which your government is still committed to doing. 
So is well, there, no, what's the time frame? Let, let's, let's be very clear. There's going to be in the coming days legislation. That legislation is going to exactly talk about what our plan is to deal with the fact that the system isn't ready at this point in time. Uh, what we've said all along is that uh, it's essential that this be done right uh, and that for somebody who's trapped in decades of suffering, um, that yes, they'd be given if, if, of their own volition and choice after decades of trying everything, if they believe there's nothing left for them and they're in an absolute state of mental torture and hell, then th they want to be able to make that decision. But we have to make sure that it's limited to those circumstances and that we have proper controls and that uh, the system is ready. So, you know, we're being deliberative. Uh, we're, we're working with provinces and territories and with experts to make sure the system is ready. Uh, there will be legislation in the coming days to talk about how much time we feel, based on the conversations that we've been having, is required. We're just not in a position to be able to say that at this time. I just had an opportunity to uh, table legislation with respect to uh, mental uh, to uh, medical assistance in dying, uh, where mental illness is sole underlying cause, uh, with a three-year extension. Uh, it will uh, allow in two years uh, for there to be a parliamentary review to assess the state of readiness of the system at this time. Uh, I can say that I have uh, communicated with all of my uh, uh, provincial. Uh, counterparts. I haven't had an opportunity with my territorial counterparts on this, uh, but, uh, but their response uh, was, was very favorable, as I think you'll hear. Uh, they uh, really do feel that they need more time uh, to be able to look at this. I will state again that the, the question at, at issue here is uh, a question of readiness. Uh, we accept uh, equivalency in the suffering of, uh, of mental uh, suffering and uh, physical suffering. And of course here we're talking about mental illness. Uh, it shouldn't be completed with um, with uh, mental health concerns. Uh, but um, I, I will lastly say uh, that uh, the time that we have to adopt this is limited. Uh, I, we certainly are having conversations, uh, Minister Barani and I, uh, with, uh, with our opposition uh, counterparts uh, because we have a, a looming date in March uh, by which we have to get this done in limiting, limited sitting days. Uh, but I once again want to thank the, uh, the Joint Committee uh, for its work. Uh, uh, so the committee process really on the Senate and uh, House side has been completed through that work uh, and the consultations they had and the recommendations were key uh, to the decision that was made today and the legislation that we take. Uh, this was entirely predictable because when that initial deadline was put in, there was a, a two-year phase-in period for the mental illness exemption. That was supposed to originally expire last year, and then it was kicked back to this year. I, I forget the exact months and days, but it was going to be in March that this was going to ultimately go into effect. And uh, basically, it said you needed to have a physical ailment, not just a mental ailment. ailment. You could have both. Now, but then they were going to say, well, it could just be any ailment that meets those criteria. Now, if I parse what Mark Holland is saying there, he gave the scenario of someone who's been suffering for decades and someone who's, they've tried everything, they've exhausted all the options, they've suffered for decades. That's nowhere in the legislation or the regulations that we have seen just yet. The Liberals have never made that as a caveat that you need to have been suffering for decades to be eligible. So if they put something like that in, I would be very surprised because that's not how anything they've discussed to date is working. So I think what Minister Holland is doing there is gaslighting Canadians to make it look like this is going to be rarer than it actually is, to make it look like it will only be for extreme circumstances when that is unlikely to be the way this manifests. Now, 
I was just pulling up here. There was a line from Dying with Dignity Canada, which is a group that basically wants, if you uh, take things to their logical conclusion, for anyone to be able to just on a whim uh, to say that they should be able to end their life and have access to this process. Now, I, I'm being very glib there deliberately. That's not you know the letter of what they're pushing for. But if you follow their arguments, they effectively push for unrestricted access to MAID in the sense that any restriction and any guardrail that's there is always seen to them as being too restrictive. So they were responding to this report from the Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying, which has recommended yet another delay, which is what the government's now doing. And this is what they say. We are disappointed and concerned for the individuals who live with longstanding treatment-resistant mental disorders who have been patiently waiting for the sunset clause to end. Another delay is simply a denial of the constitutional rights of people across Canada and a continuation of stigma, discrimination, and intolerable suffering. At this stage, there is a lack of clarity on what this recommendation will mean, and we urge the government to share their plan swiftly. So what they're saying there is that there is a constitutional right to die. And they're saying that right extends to people with what they call long-standing treatment-resistant mental disorders. But I stress that this is not something that has been clearly defined or even poorly defined. It's not something that's been defined in law. We're just supposed to accept that this government that has been going down this road of unlimited, unfettered access to assisted suicide as a matter of constitutional rights, we can just trust them and they'll figure it out. How long until this is extended to minors. Do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that Quebec physician that was testifying and he basically talked about involuntary euthanasia for infants as being something that he thought uh, was suitable. If you had a, a deformed, a severely deformed or disabled infant, uh, the doctors should be able to just go to them and kill them without consent. This is literally what was being articulated by a physician. I think he was the head of the Quebec College of Physicians before a parliamentary committee. So when I use the terms earlier in the show that there is a culture of death, I am not at all exaggerating. And we have people in this system, by the way, that are all too eager and happy to push this on people. I mean, the example of the chairlift is almost this strange novelty now. It's, it's almost a punchline. Someone, you know, calls up and says, oh, I'd like some medical care. And they say, well, can I interest you in MAID? And, you know, it's not funny. It's absurd. And it's extreme. But it is not funny. People are dying because the government is telling them it's okay to. People are dying because they have no hope because other systems have failed. And people are going to end their lives now with the state sanction. And to go back to my personal example of this, my own struggles with mental illness and suicide, one of the things that I learned going through that process is that there are legal mechanisms in place that prevent you from having your own liberty in a way, if you are at a risk of harming yourself. If you confess to someone that you want to end your life, someone has a reason to suspect that, there are mechanisms in place that allow police to detain you, that allow doctors to detain you, and this is done for your own protection. Now, look, I'm a libertarian. I don't like the idea of people's liberty being taken away, but we are talking about extreme and extenuating circumstances here. So why I share that is that imagine a situation in which today, I go into a doctor's office and I say, fortunately, I don't believe this, but I say, uh, doctor, I want to end my life. Under the current law, his job would be to do what is necessary to ensure that I'm safe. 
under the new system, does he give me a pamphlet? Does he refer me to the specialist down the hall that does that to have a, a nice, uh, hefty, robust consult? It, it's absurd because right now we have a system that is in place that is designed because we realize that life matters though we have to value people's life. And if someone wants to end their life, that is not something that we prescribe a treatment for that is giving them an end of life. The treatment is what we do to stop them from ending their life. And it is disgraceful and heartbreaking to think of people in 2024, 2025, 2026 that are gonna go through what I went through in 2010. And instead of being given life-saving intervention and care and treatment to save their lives, some will, many will not. People will be given what they think they want, which is an end to their existence. And we in Canada are calling this healthcare. We in Canada are calling this treatment, if you can believe that. We are saying that is what you do. If someone wants to end their life, if someone wants to kill themselves, the medical intervention they require is not psychiatric care. It is to give them what they want and kill them. And this is personal. And anyone who has ever gone through mental illness or has experienced a family member or friend or otherwise a loved one who has gone through this knows how difficult it is. And another aspect of this, by the way, is that you do not have the requirement, if you're a physician that does MAID, to notify any family members. Uh, and in fact, you are barred from doing so if the person, if the patient doesn't want this shared, doesn't want this disclosed. So you could theoretically have someone that is secretly going through this process. They're privately suffering. Or maybe they're suffering in a way that's known to other people, but they're going through the MAID process. And then one day they go to the doctor's office and never come home. And a loved one's wondering, what, where, where did Timmy go? Maybe I'm being conspiratorial, but you know what? I don't think I am because I'm reading the laws. I'm reading the regulations. And I'm also reading between the lines on what the advocates and activists who believe that any restriction at all is an affront are always pushing for. And I know that whatever legislation the liberals come out with, whatever legislation they eventually bring, which is according to Minister Holland coming out just in the coming days, whatever they do is going to be met with yet another constitutional challenge, yet another series of concerns and complaints from activists that it goes too far against this idea of just unfettered access to medical assistance in dying. And we're going to go right back to where we are now. And to be frank, I do not trust the Supreme Court when it eventually goes up there to stand up for life because it's the Supreme Court of Canada, the very similar composition to the current Supreme Court of Canada that got us into this place in the first place. Now, I want to bring this out of the personal realm and into the political realm here for a moment. Michael Cooper is a Conservative Member of Parliament and joins me now. Michael, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. With you, Andrew. Uh, now, you're obviously on this committee, the Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance and Dying, and I, I stressed this with my audience uh, a moment ago, but I, I think it bears repeating here. The government has not shown any desire to walk this back. They're talking about this as a matter of, of when and not if, correct? 
That was the message of both uh, the health minister and the justice minister, Mark Holland and Arif Varani, when they had a press conference uh, the other day. And that anything short of an indefinite pause, in our view, would be unacceptable because there are fundamental problems with uh, expanding made in cases where mental illness is the sole underlying disorder or condition. Yeah, and I, I've shared my own struggles and, and story with my listeners in the past. As a survivor of suicide, I have grave concerns about the implications of, of this for people that are going through now and in the future, what I went through in, in the past. But one of the things I, I find so shocking about this is that even before this change has come into effect, we have heard so many stories of people that are not eligible under the current laws that are still finding their way through the system. So I, I think already there's a problem here that the government has not shown an, an eagerness or even interest in dealing with. Absolutely. And uh, we've seen many instances of abuse and persons who are vulnerable, who have been pressured uh, or coerced into uh, getting made. And uh, with respect to made in mental illness. Uh, this fundamentally changes the concept of made. Uh, when the original made legislation uh, was passed in 2016, Bill uh, C-14, it was uh, sold as something that uh, was tied to someone dying, medical assistance in dying, uh, for persons who had the capacity and who were suffering to make the choice to end their life just a little bit sooner. Uh, this radically changes that into something that would be tantamount to state-sanctioned, state-facilitated suicide, impacting some of the most vulnerable persons in Canadian society. Now, you're obviously, in addition to being an MP, a, a lawyer by training, so I, I think you can probably weigh in on this better than some of your colleagues can, but the government has effectively said its hands are tied on this, that the Supreme Court made a ruling that said the previous uh, regime, which I, is, I guess, the current regime was too restrictive, and they, they've kind of been forced into that. So what's your perspective on that aspect of this? It's simply nonsense. The Carter decision did not pronounce on uh, made and mental illness, this is beyond the parameters of the Carter decision. Uh, there has been a law since 2016, and there has not been a single court decision that has struck down the law from the standpoint of restricting made and mental illness. This was a purely political decision made by the liberals in, frankly, a shambolic and reckless fashion. It is what happens when a government, and this is a government, that has put blind ideology ahead of evidence-based decision-making. This expansion of MAID occurred as a result of a Senate amendment that David Lametti, as Justice Minister, accepted at the last minute. The Liberals proceeded to shut down debate, ram this expansion through with an arbitrary timeline of two years, and then said, let's study the issue after the fact. And uh, what experts have said, loud and clear to the liberals, is that this is not safe, this is not appropriate, and it will result in persons who could get better to have their lives prematurely ended.
Well, you know, you're right to point out there, Michael, the problem with the process here, because originally people may recall this was meant to have come in automatically after a, a two year phase in period. And the government just said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out the details in that two years. And, and they didn't. I mean, there was no agreement reached. There was no resolution to this. Now, thankfully, they, they at least delayed it to prevent that initial implementation. And here we are again with, with yet another delay or, or pause, as they put it. But they were, in a lot of ways, going to just let this sneak in. That's right. And what happened is just before the phase-in, uh, which was scheduled for March of 2023, March of last year, 17 chairs of psychiatry representing the chairs of psychiatry at all medical schools in Canada penned a letter calling on the Liberals to put a pause on this expansion. And they identified fundamental problems with uh, this. And it was only then that the Liberals introduced legislation at the last minute last year to put a one-year pause on uh, this expansion of aid. One year later, we find ourselves in exactly the same position. At literally the same time this year as last, with a deadline of March, the Liberals are bringing in rush legislation to put a further pause because the very issues that were identified as problematic with this expansion remain the same today. And it's why this government, I would submit, just again, if, if, if they, they do the responsible thing, should just recognize they got it wrong. They made a mistake to go down this road in the first place and put a permanent pause on this, kick, trying to kick the can one or two or three years down the road isn't going to change the fundamental problems that exist with this. I, I mean no disrespect when I, I say this, Michael, to your chosen uh, profession in politics here, but but a lot of what is done in the House of Commons and through legislation, it, it has meaning and it has significance, but it's not life or death. This is literally, I mean, by design, by definition, life or death legislation. And, I, you know, I can just use my own example because it's one I know intimately, but other people have come to me when I've talked about this in the past with their own stories who've literally said, I was at a time in my life, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where if this were available to me, I would have taken it and I would be dead. And then you fast forward and life has turned around. So the government has not that I have seen, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you were on the committee, proposed a legitimate and useful guardrail or protective measure to ensure that uh, people who are in situations like I was in and like other people have been in uh, will not access this. I mean, even yesterday, uh, Minister Holland, I felt, was gaslighting when he talked about, oh, people who have suffered for decades and tried everything. Even if that were the test, I've not seen that spelled out anywhere in writing that you have to have been going through something for decades and you have to have exhausted all avenues. So that's not even a guardrail they've proposed, is it? Not a guardrail. They advocates of it claim that that's what would happen, but then they oppose legislating it. Mm. Uh, in fact, the government provided no safeguards, no new safeguards. And quite frankly, there aren't any safeguards that would make this expansion safe because there are two fundamental clinical and legal issues. Uh, the first is uh, a clinical and legal one, and that is that it is difficult, if not impossible, to predict irremediability. In other words, it's difficult, if not impossible, to predict whether someone could get better, resulting in persons prematurely having their lives 
end it, which is completely mm-hmm. unacceptable. We heard evidence from psychiatrists that uh, a mistake or error rate could be as high as 50% of the time on the question of your immediability. And it's a legal 50%. issue. 50%. 50%. So we're talking about a coin toss here, basically. A coin toss. Yeah. Uh, another psychiatrist said uh, they could be uh, right not 5% of the time or uh, 95% of the time. There's just so much uncertainty surrounding it, which just underscores the recklessness of this, because if the liberals had studied this, had they consulted before deciding to do this, they would have heard that feedback from uh, leading psychiatrists. And I would hope that no responsible government would, on that basis, move ahead with this. But this doesn't appear to be a responsible government. And the, you know, the second issue that is uh, a clinical one, fundamental, is that it is difficult to accurately assess when when persons are suffering from mental illness, whether their request for aid is one that is rational, uh, in other words, that they're competent to make that request, or whether it is one motivated by suicidal ideation. That's underscored by the fact that in about 90% of cases of of suicide deaths, uh, those persons have a diagnosable mental illness. Yeah, and and there, I mean, just to put a, a fine point on that, the request itself could be a symptom, which you know, under current healthcare protocols, a doctor would have to respond with a mechanism to make sure you're safe instead of you know facilitating this, instead of giving you a pamphlet or a referral to someone that can make that happen. Which is why this is just so so incredibly incredibly disgusting. And you know, there were questions that Minister Holland was facing from reporters who I, I thought were quite good on this, generally saying, you know, you're going to make this a, a political issue by delaying it closer to an election. I don't think, and maybe I'm, I'm just overly positive or optimistic here, I don't think this being an election issue helps the Liberals. I, I have to think that Canadians are as repulsed by this as, as you and I are. And I, I'm wondering if you've got any insight on that in terms of letters you've received or, or people that have testified before the committee. Well, the overwhelming evidence before the committee from experts, in fact, just about every leading expert said don't go ahead with this. Uh, there were nearly 900 briefs uh, submitted in the span of about a week, which is very high for a committee. In fact, it might be the most briefs I've had on a committee or a study that I've been involved in, uh, which shows uh, public interest and concern. And most of those briefs submitted by Canadians, including a number of experts, was don't go ahead with this. And uh, although they like to talk about this in an abstract sense. Let's talk about what this would really mean. Who would qualify? What does it mean to expand uh, made in cases of mental illness? When Mona Gupta, uh, who was the chair of the liberal appointed expert panel on this matter, was asked, what would constitute a mental illness or a mental disorder? She said, anything listed in the uh, DSM-5. What that would mean is that it could uh, include persons who are suffering from depression, who have schizophrenia, who are autistic, who have uh, issues arising from uh, uh, drug addictions. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about made and mental illness. Instead of offering persons hope and help who are struggling, what this liberal government is doing with this expansion is offering them death. And I think that's so fundamentally wrong. And I think most Canadians would be repulsed by it. And the more Canadians learn about it, they are. 
Yeah, and also as, as psychiatrists have, have testified and said, diagnostic criteria are not always simple on these things. There's a lot of overlap. It's not like you can do a, a blood test for depression. It's not like you can just in a, a 100% certain way even diagnose someone with this. How do you know this is just a mental illness and not just a, a phase in life that's brought on by, by circumstances? So uh, absolutely, absolutely ghastly. I'm, I'm glad there is some pushback on this. Michael Cooper, conservative Democratic reform critic. Thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Well, I wanted to move on to another dimension of a topic entirely. Not uh, we, we can't just be totally about the depressing stuff all day long here. As you know, I am in Washington, D.C. this week covering the defamation trial of Mark Stein and Rand Simberg. It was a, I mean, it's a climate change issue. It's a free speech issue. And even though it's an American court case, it is also one that I think has wide reaching implications for free speech and discourse around the world. Hence why I'm down here also, because Mark has been a, a longtime friend and sometimes colleague of mine. But uh, one of the things that was quite fascinating, and this was actually a, yesterday, I didn't really have much to talk about on the case. Today I do, because in, in the courtroom yesterday afternoon, noon, there was a moment where it almost looked like the whole case was going to be thrown out, which was just quite uh, extremely uh, un, un, just unlikely on, on my part, because there had been, it seemed there had been some doubt as to whether the plaintiff, so that's Michael Mann, the, the University of Pennsylvania climate scientist, whether his legal team had actually submitted as evidence the things that they said were defamatory. They didn't appear in the evidence logs. They didn't appear in the transcript. Uh, it was just this thing that they assumed had been put forward, but hadn't actually. And uh, the they very felt like it in the courtroom anyway, when the defense raised this after the point at which the plaintiff had arrested their case, uh, that they were pointing out, hey, we, we have no case to answer to. You guys didn't table the one critical piece of evidence you need in a defamation case, which is the statement you say is defamatory. So uh, there was a lengthy, uh, prolonged debate discussion over this. Then there was a bit of a recess. The judge came back and had listened to the audio because, again, the transcript didn't show it. And he found sufficient ambiguity in what had happened that he said, OK, I think this case is uh, proceeding because the evidence has been admitted. But there's still been a motion to... Uh, not even let the jury decide this case. The defenses uh, have put a motion forward, the defendants, uh, that has effectively said, listen, uh, the jury has no legal basis or factual basis to determine the defamation has taken place here. So the judge is going to rule on that probably on the weekend. So the case proceeds in the interim. Uh, but it was quite fascinating. They had a, an expert witness at the end of the day yesterday who's a, a statistician. He's a professor who's been, I think he was went to Yale and then Stanford, and now he's at the University of Pennsylvania, Abraham Weiner. And Professor Weiner's testimony was quite fascinating because he said, listen, I, I'm a, statist a statistician. I am interested in this issue. He's not one of these people that is a climate denier, this evil, scary climate denier. No, he's just saying, I look at the numbers. And he thought that Michael Mann's infamous hockey stick graph was featuring manipulated data and was misleading. 
So how can you be sued for defamation when you claim that a graph is fraudulent and misleading if you've got a statistical expert here from an eminent university, an eminent expert, eminently eminent, and all his eminence and all of that saying, yeah, I, I look at the numbers and the numbers say this is misleading. So I, I think that was quite a, a fascinating development in the case. We'll see if, uh, well, basically we'll see how the judge uh, takes it. And then after that, we'll see how the jury takes it. <laughs> the thing is the jury has just like, because if I were ever called for jury duty, I would want it to be like, like some, you know, gory, uh, glamorous murder trial, a double homicide, something really, really sexy and exciting. And this jury has gotten like three weeks of climate scientists versus conservative uh, writer and blogger. So uh, unless you're into that fight, which I am, and I think many of you are, it's uh, probably the short end of the jury stick. And they've been going at it now for, uh, for the better part of three weeks. Uh, anyway, in keeping with the climate theme, we started a series this week called Unjust Transition. And it is, as the name suggests, a direct response and rebuttal to the federal government's so-called just transition, where Justin Trudeau and his uh, fellow cabinet colleagues say that we can just transition away from oil and gas, everything's going to be fine. And all of these people that are employed in the oil and gas sector, well, we'll, we'll find, uh, I just like threw my microphone cable in my face. All these people who are employed in that sector will uh, find something for them. Maybe they can make electric car batteries or something like that. So uh, we've decided to work with the Modern Miracle Network and tell the positives of the energy sector in Canada. We talked earlier this week with Michael Binion. Yesterday, we had uh, the gentleman from Northback, the great Canadian-Australian mining company. Uh, today, I wanted to go in a different direction with it. I sat down with Richard Wyman, who's a, an honest-to-goodness oil and gas CEO. He's the president of Chance Oil and Gas out of Calgary, uh, formerly Northern Cross, uh, Yukon. So not just out of Calgary. We talk about the North in this interview. So I thought it would be a good little primer into just how vast and diverse the oil and gas world in Canada is. This is my chat with Richard Wyman. Joining me now is Richard Wyman, president of Chance Oil and Gas, and you're the one for whom North of 60 is not just an old Canadian television show. This is part That's of your buddy's lifeblood. It is. It's, uh, we might be the only company still trying to be active north of the 60th parallel. The uh, end of the Mackenzie Valley pipeline has caused most of the industry to leave, uh, pursuing shale opportunities either in Canada or elsewhere in the world. Uh, why are you still up there then? Why why have you not had that same you know reduction in optimism? I guess that so many of your counterparts. Yeah, have? I, well, the primary reason is it's our only asset. Uh, we started this business in the fall of 1994, purchasing the three significant discovery licenses representing the only discoveries in the northern Yukon from a period of early exploration that began in 1955 and probably terminated around 1973, and. Uh, and so we had it in our plan as a being a small company wanting to have a large position with some resources in a region that would be viewed for the long distant future as being energy dependent. And, uh, and so as a little company back in the mid 90s, uh, it was a pretty competitive industry down here. And so we wanted to go somewhere that didn't have a lot of traffic in the sandbox. And I did a thesis in my MBA on stranded resources for local markets. And so that kind of got me into it. 
but it's taken a long time. And in the period that since we began, there's been a devolution from being a federal jurisdiction to a territorial jurisdiction. And then uh, modern land claims have led to some implementation of legislation and practices that didn't exist when we first got involved. Um, so we're living in a, in a landscape that um, has had its own economic ups and downs. And because we were trying to be married to a local economy, it did have a big bearing on our pace of activity. Um, and we have also had some challenges getting sufficient capitalization to proceed. Uh, so we've had periods where we've had a lot of money to explore and uh, spent that money. And that exploration was aimed at uh, beginning the process of evaluating unconventional natural gas and crude oil resources in shale. Uh, Yukon government imposed a moratorium on hydraulic fracture stimulation, which is a technique that is required if you want to economically extract hydrocarbons in that kind of a geological setting. So that uh, ended up with uh, losing a pretty significant shareholder. And we've been doing our best to activate an exploration project in the same area. Um, but it's, it's a slow process. The uh, governments in Yukon have changed and they mirror the, the, both the party composition, the minority situation, and the policies of the federal government. So it's been difficult for the last few years. Just, just on that point for a moment, because you know, if there is a declining number of companies that are wanting to invest and have roots there, why is the territorial government not welcoming one of the, the last players or the last player left doing this? Well, you know, when we started on this, the Yukon government and the federal government were welcoming. But uh, it's back in the 90s. In the 90s and even through the first decade of um, okay. this century. But uh, environmental NGOs have done a remarkable job of scaring people about fossil fuels and elevating the climate change agenda. But the, the reality is in the Yukon, it's, it is a, a heavily dependent on uh, energy. Most of it has to come from the outside. There is a little bit of hydropower generation locally, but uh, you know, it's, it's a mining jurisdiction. It's got big geography, generally a pretty hostile climate. So its appetite for energy is high. And so, that, I mean, that was kind of framework that we were trying to tuck ourselves into. And the, uh, the main non-government aspect of the local economy is wrapped around tourism to some extent, but mostly mining. And that's a energy intensive industry at the best of times, especially when you're in an area where it's cold most of the time. So, I mean, we try to position ourselves as being uh, a local supplier, adding value to the territory, trying to shorten up supply lines and, and trying to contribute to security supply, reliability supply, uh, and affordability of supply, but also create economic benefits in a region that were, was economic, and still is economically depressed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of those reasons still continue it's just that uh, we haven't got quite the uh, framework of, of um, uptake. And I think the other impediment uh, is that um, uh, Yukon and, and a, lot of, a lot of jurisdictions in this country is a significant beneficiary of, of a uh, transfer payment. 
and it's a it's a big number. The territorial government has roughly 10% of its budget, 10% 90% of its money for its budget comes from Ottawa. So that so your contribution or your industry's contribution is never going to dwarf what the government gives. No, that's right. And so there's there's no incentive for these governments to have genuine economic development policies because the bills are looked after. I think if uh, if they were in a different situation, we might be in a different situation ourselves. We'd be moving forward and and building out resources that could serve the the regional market. And at the same time, there's in this geopolitical environment we live in today, having a presence economically is a very strong basis for preserving your strategic interests in the area too. Ooh. So. So, I mean, there's a lot of things about what we're trying to do that make a great deal of sense, but we have some barriers to, that have to be overcome to, to proceed. There's a narrative advanced by, I mean, some of those environmental NGOs you mentioned that oil and gas development is antithetical to, um, you know, indigenous priorities. But you and I were chatting just before the interview, and you said half your firm is, in fact, indigenous. So what's that relationship been like for you? Great. The, uh, there, there's four uh, salaried employees with the company. We used to have more when we were active, but uh, that's still, that it, to replace those bodies would have to come when we are cleared to do, do some more drilling. But uh, the staff we have are two Gwich'in, uh, so they're born and raised in Old Crow, the most northerly community in, in the Yukon. Uh, it's in the, the area of their traditional territory uh, and they're both smart people uh, one of them is university educated the other one is uh, uh, has been involved in the implementation of their land claim that was settled in 1993 so his ex experience with the uh, strategic objectives of the First Nation at the time that they were negotiating and settling their land claim have brought a lot of value to us and mm. positioning ourselves in the same area. Uh, and they're, they're both great guys to, to work with. Uh, you know, it, without them, I think we would be struggling even more. Why, to bring it back to what you said about the territorial governments not really having a, an incentive to have development, I mean, it, is there a solution to that? I mean, if you were to to write a federal policy, would there be something that could be done about that or is that just so baked in that it's not really because your company as you just said there is in limbo because of this and, and you really can't grow without waiting for approval that you really can't control yeah i don't know if there the probably the one policy would be the the uh transfer payment is getting cut and forcing the local territory to develop economic policy that would uh, establish its own tax base i mean there's there are mines there. Uh, a lot of it is the placer mines that are still a legacy of the Klondike gold rush over 120 years ago. Um, but there have been mines that have been operating, uh, aren't operating anymore, depleted or otherwise. Uh, some are on the books to go to a development, but they're caught in the uh, prolonged and unpredictable assessment practices uh, leading up to getting permits but this is another area where you know if those mines were allowed to proceed their energy requirements are huge and the the Yukon is from its own power uh, generation isolated from the rest of the 
continent. So you need to have an energy producer there to meet that. That's right. Yes. So right now, uh, there's about, I think the total power grid is something like 150 megawatts or something like that. And around 100, maybe a little more, is electric hydro from run a river or dams. And uh, the balance is fossil fuel, diesel, and uh, liquefied natural gas. But the marginal electron is generated by burning diesel or, or liquefied natural gas. And in order to expand the, the grid to meet anticipated demand from mines that are going through some kind of a process leading up to uh, development, that source of energy is yet to be determined. And I don't think any of it is large enough to justify these modular nuclear. So it's going to have to be something like me showing up with some natural gas or a crude oil, or it's going to have to be trucked from Edmonton or barged up from a refinery on the uh, Pacific Northwest through Skagway. and From all of which bring about more emissions than having production. I mean, it's all domestic, but having, you know, on-site or in territory. That's right. I mean, uh, there there is a, a benefit to having local energy supply from uh, reducing collective emissions that may not do much for the inside the ring fence of the Yukon Territory, but uh, from the point of view of the eight or 9,000 kilometers of supply line that from wellhead through refining and distribution back to the burner tip in the Yukon, that's a long, long supply line. <clears throat> and in, in this world that we live in, especially with the carbon taxes, that, that magnifies its cost mm. in everything in the Yukon. Fuel delivery, food delivery, it, you know, there's too many touch points from source to delivery. That's why you end up with a, you know, a $10 cauliflower or something. That's right, yeah. If you, yeah. If you were buying milk in Anubik, you're paying like 17 or 18 bucks wow. for a four liter jug. And there's a good chance that its shelf life in your fridge isn't gonna last very long because it's been on the road for 10 days. <clears throat> Yeah, so that kind of stuff is a common theme. So, you know, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, we bring a good idea. I mean, it's exploration still, so that the resource mass is yet to be defined that would allow you to flick the light switch on. Mm -hmm. But you got to start somewhere. And, uh, and it's the bleeding edge of the industry is the exploration side of it. But if it does work, it could have a profoundly positive impact on the, on the Yukon itself. Uh, both from a government revenue point of view, but also on the local First Nation communities that are uh, sharing traditional territory or bordering on each other in the northern Yukon. There's nothing much going on otherwise. Wow, wonderful. I, I hope you'll be able to have some certainty. But I mean, how long is this process for you of, of getting that approval? That you Well, uh, COVID kind of threw a bit of a monkey <laughs> wrench in, in the timing. But uh, so we started this process of uh, engagement with the First Nations on, on a multi-year exploration project in 2017. And uh, we've been working on it ever since. And th there was a hiatus with COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. As you might imagine, uh, in the north where medical facilities are a bit limited, mm -hmm. the, uh, keeping the virus out was a preferred mm -hmm. um, objective. And the First Nations themselves have a long memory of epidemics wiping out their populations from a history of Europeans traversing their territory yeah. over the last few centuries. So the nervous system was high. And so we had to take a bit of a breather through that. Uh, but in the last 
year or so, I think pace has picked up. And uh, so we're moving forward, but still it's going to take probably two to three more years before we wow. clear the impact assessments and regulatory approval process. Richard Wyman, Chance Oil and Gas. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. We will have more from our Unjust Transition series next week on The Andrew Lawton Show. And as always, all of these are uploaded as standalones as well. So if you're interested in this and maybe you don't care as much about the assisted suicide stuff, you can parcel them out. Or uh, maybe you care about the assisted suicide stuff and not this. You can also do that too. In any event, that does it for us for today and for this week. We'll be back on Monday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.